the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question. Veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T, lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt. Today's going to be a really exciting show because it's about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Keyword bipartisan. Whoever heard of that? Anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about that with uh, attorney Alex Vollmer, He's a continuing guest on the show. He's an attorney at Marquardt Law Firm, and I'm just really excited about this show. So today, uh, before we get started, I have to tell you about our sponsor, Marquardt Law Firm. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trusts, and tax-protected inheritance plans and new businesses and old businesses which might have issues with corporations, contracts, LLCs, family limited partnerships, and we can represent those who are facing problems from lack of planning, like in district court, county court, or probate court. So we're not going to be given any legal advice today on the radio or ever, Um, Because the State Bar of Texas is the state agency that governs attorney law licenses, and even though they want us to give information to the public about the law, uh, material discussed in this program is meant for general informational purposes only. Before we get started talking about the law, let's begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us of our sins, for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing, or failing to carry out your will. Please help me and attorney Alex Vollmer give good information to the listeners today about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Help us to use the gifts and talents you have provided for the good of your people, for our own good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now it's time to discover... Your legal issue blind spots by listening to me talk about the law on the radio. Today's show is going to be about the new United States Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, and attorney Alex Vollmer and I will be discussing Title I of that act, which is access to mental health in schools, and Title II of the act, which is uh, regarding firearms. We're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Todd Marquardt. With me is Alex Vollmer, attorney with Marquardt Law Firm. Uh, Alex has lived in San Antonio his whole life. You were born here, right? I was. And he went to school here. Uh, Where did you get your undergraduate? Um, uh, UTSA. Oh, okay. Yep. And then you went to St. Mary's. Yep. uh, Where I went. So we we love St. Mary's grads. And tell us a little bit about your career after graduating from St. Mary's. Um, so immediately after graduating from St. Mary's and passing the bar, I went to work for the uh, Bear County District Attorney's Office as a prosecutor. And uh, I worked there for a few years. <clears throat> and uh, you did a lot of trials there. Yes, quite, quite a few. Um, around 50 um, prosecuting various, uh, you know, financial, violent, and um, regulatory offenses, and then um, left the district attorney's office, and I was a uh, mainly did uh, criminal defense with a few other things, but um, and and did had a lot of focus on um, 
firearms defense and and uh, crimes. Okay, so you've been involved with firearms laws on the prosecution side and on the defense side, so you're very familiar with that. And then you also had an interest in uh, using trusts with yes. guns and firearms. Yes, absolutely. You know, the use of a trust, um, what we call an NFA trust, to uh, as a mechanism for applying for um, some firearms that are even more regulated than uh, what you can just go down to the gun store and purchase. Uh, so it offers some benefits in that process as well as some planning benefits. And, um, Which we'll talk about yeah. at the end. But first, we want to get to the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was uh, passed in Congress and the, the United States Senate and signed by President Biden. And so I think that's extraordinary that it would be passed with votes from both parties. It really is, especially in this day and age. So I wanted to define bipartisan um, for just people that maybe never use that word. And uh, I think the Oxford uh, Dictionary defined it as involving the agreement or cooperation of two political parties that usually oppose each other's policies. So that's why it's uh, so remarkable right now. And this uh, Safer Communities Act um, it's now known as Public Law Number 117-159, and it includes a lot of things, which was also interesting to me. So on Talk Law Radio, we don't just talk about what our opinions about the law are. We're going to read segments of the law to you so that you can cut through all the other talking heads on other talk shows on Talk Law Radio, we want you to know what the law is. So this was passed at the end of June, and uh, we're, it took us a couple of weeks to, to read something about it. There, there's a, a little bit of pork in this legislation that just gives money to pay for things that are unrelated to uh, firearms control measures. Um, so that that was also interesting to me. But the first thing in the law, um, the, in Title I, is about mental health and firearms. So what should we uh, talk about first in that regard, Alex? I mean, I would think how does mental health relate to firearms in the context of this Safer Communities bill? Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I've long believed that one of the most effective strategies for, you know, reducing gun violence um, is going to be, uh, you know, access to mental health and, and the provision of mental health services. So I think that's – it's pretty obvious how it relates to it, but um, – Well, and it do, mental health doesn't just have to mean that there's um, uh, a mental – disease or defect it could just be like anger management yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. or uh, the prevention of domestic violence teaching people how to be good spouses yeah communication <laughs> right okay so one thing that the this new law does is it expands access to community and school-based behavioral health services for children and families what is it in the law that's going to expand access? Well, it's an appropriations bill. And what it's doing is earmarking or um, authorizing funding uh, to provide these services. New programs mm -hmm. for uh, mental health services at schools. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I believe it's 10 new states every two years. Yeah, that that's where it says... Um, the funding will expand the Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic Demonstration Program uh, in up to 10 new states every two years. So uh, I don't know what the demonstration program is, but I, well, I understand the other part that says Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinic. Mm -hmm. So that, that sounds good. Um, 
the bill is also supposed to provide funding to increase access to telehealth services. Uh, during the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, laws were passed uh, and regulations were implemented that allow mental health providers to provide services over like Zoom mm-hmm. and Teams and uh, video conferencing. So we have to take a break, but when we come back, we'll keep talking about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And uh, so stay tuned. could be a nightmare for your family, which is why it's important to meet with an attorney before you go on vacation. Get your affairs in order just in case, God forbid, tragedy strikes and you become disabled or worse happens while traveling. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trust, and tax-protected inheritance plans. A living trust might save your family thousands of dollars. Protect what's yours at Marquardt Law Firm, 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here with attorney Alex Vollmer talking about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, uh, which was just passed at the end of June. And it's uh, what this new uh, United States uh, law is going to do is provide funding to improve mental health services. And it does change some of the law on background checks for the purchase of firearms We'll get into that in a, in a little bit. Uh, we started talking about uh, the appropriations of funding for um, community mental health services in, in schools, and we're going to keep talking about that a little bit. Um, I learned that $250 million is being earmarked for Community Mental Health Services Block Grant, which enables states and the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., and territories to expand access to mental health care, and also Medicaid, mm-hmm. right? Me- Medicaid will be funded um, for schools. Um, it Mental health is part of health care, and Medicaid pays for some of that for low-income and, and low-asset families. And it'll somehow be tied to the the Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP. Uh, Some funding will be used to increase the number of mental health service providers in schools. So um, usually I I wonder about how federal monies going into local schools is going to affect uh, how the schools are run. Usually... um, that that's a function of state law is telling schools how how they should be run um but this some of this money is to train primary care providers and pediatric primary care providers uh to provide mental health care and connect patients to mental health experts some of the funding would be to improve treatment programs who have experienced trauma um, uh, we know that that has occurred uh, in our community in Uvalde. Uh, quite a few people experienced trauma recently. Uh, we pray for the Lord to be with you during those trying times, and uh, we hope that life can go back to normal, hopefully. God be with you. $1 billion to help schools to put in place comprehensive strategies to create safe and healthy learning environments for all students. That's pretty broad. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that. Who? What does that mean? <laughs> we'll find out yeah. after they issue the regulations. Um, funding to support <laughs> after school and before school and summer programs. Um, 
which the the government says uh, will help reduce risk of violent incidents and law enforcement interactions. So um, I remember like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, that's an after-school program, but I guess some of this funding will be to support that. Again, it's just general. We don't know where the money's going to go, actually. Yeah, very early days of how is it going to shake out and trickle down. And mm-hmm. Yeah. $300 million to students and educators for the training and tools they need on how to prevent and respond to violence against themselves and others. So just to remind you, we're talking about the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was just passed by uh, the House of Representatives and the United States Senate and signed by President Joe Biden. Um, Before we go on, um, i got to ask you something. Where do pigs sleep during the summer? In a hammock. (laughs) No. Just throw in that joke there since we're talking about this dry law. Okay, Alex, this is going to be your forte here. Uh, Let's get into Title II, the the firearms section. Um, One of those uh, new sections, 12001, is about juvenile records. Mm -hmm. What is that about? So... The change, or what the law does is it adds juveniles or uh, as a juvenile to the section of the law that discusses who is a a disqualified person from purchasing, owning, possessing, transferring a firearm. And so it it also – it expands a little bit of – background checks for juveniles and people under the age of 21. And so a juvenile, somebody under the age of 18 is already not allowed to purchase a firearm. Correct. So how is this how how does adding juvenile to this uh definition affect the the current regulations? So before the change um disqualifying crimes or actions committed while a juvenile would not disqualify you as a 18-plus-year-old person. You could be a bad kid and still buy a firearm possibly after adult – after the age of majority, yes. age 18. Yes. Um, so now those uh, – Juvenile offenses can be taken into consideration on whether or not you are disqualified from buying a firearm. After age 16, right? So the the 16-year-old portion there says what, what – I, I read the statute as saying that mental health records of oh, okay. those age 16 and under are not disqualifying, meaning that if you have had some mental health – um, you know, circumstances or um, determinations that would otherwise disqualify you, but you were 15 or younger, that those mental health records would not disqualify you. Um, so if you had had, say, a uh, determination of incapacity or – and, you know, this is the way that the statute says it of mental defectiveness at age 16 or over – those could disqualify you. Okay, so if you had to go to uh, an institution, yes, well, yeah, it, I mean, you were a danger to yourself or others, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that that's where the age sixteen comes in. But you're saying that if you're under age sixteen and say you commit uh, an offense that would be considered domestic violence. That could still be used against you even after you're an adult. That's the way I read it. That's the way I read it. I, I was not able to find a good analysis of that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's the way I read it. And um, just remember that that you have to be convicted of these offenses. So oh, there, has okay. to be, there has to be a, a, a final conviction um, in order for those to apply. So let's say you're you're a – 14-year-old young man and you punch your dad in the face. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if there's no conviction of family violence, then he doesn't have to disclose that incident. Correct, because the the uh, forty four seventy three I can't remember the, um, the background check form number, uh, but the background check form says, "Have you ever been convicted of?" Okay, so if you haven't been convicted of it, you can answer no. But if you did something more serious and the police came. Say you stab your sister, uh-huh. and the police come, and you know the state prosecutes the the child, then that could be a, a domestic type crime that would stay with them forever. It would, yes, it would probably also be a felony crime because it's aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Oh, okay, which is also a felony. <clears throat> but you know, if you just let's say you punched your sister in the nose, you know, yeah, yeah that okay, that could be a domestic violence crime. So that's. The juvenile records new section that applies to this law. And the reason I think it's important for our listeners is because this is a hidden issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have thought that things that kids did would haunt them for the rest of their lives? I mean, up until this point, I've I've never heard of anything saying that uh, what you do as a child is going to follow you for the end of time. Right. Yeah, so this is new, and you might want to talk to your kids about their behavior and try and intervene early so that they don't have a conviction because it's going to affect their rights for the rest of their lives. And because people are living to be a hundred years old, mm-hmm. that could be another 80 years. Yeah. And, and it's just a good life lesson of you never know how, you know, kids are kids, but you never know how what you do can affect the rest of your life. That's true. But, and also the thing about kids is their brain isn't fully developed. Very true. So who knows why they do what they do, but sometimes they just make, irrational decisions because they don't have good executive function yet. Exactly. I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, obviously, but my understanding is that that has to do with the for the uh, development of the frontal lobe, uh, which is not fully developed. I know in males till I think around age 25 and somewhat sooner for females, but, um, and that's the part of the brain that connects actions with consequences. Yeah. So, so this is a very interesting part of the law for me, but let's move on. Um, the next section, 12002, defines engaged in the business. So tell us about that. So this has been a very sort of gray, nebulously defined area of firearms law for a long time. And what the law used to say, uh, the law used to say that somebody was engaged in the business of firearms with uh, when their actions were being made with the principal objective of livelihood and profit. And now it says that you are engaged in the business of firearms if your activities are to predominantly earn a profit. And why this is important is because whether or not you are engaged in the business of selling, transferring firearms – determines, one, whether or not you need to have a federal firearms license and be regulated and um, inspected uh, by the ATF, and whether or not you need to do a background check. So basically, are you engaged in the business? Do you need an FFL? Or are you a private collector who can take advantage of, and I hate this phrase, the gun show loophole? Um, You know, private sales from a private collector to another person or the walmart parking lot (laughs) yeah yeah the walmart parking lot loophole it doesn't have to be at a gun show um but private sales from a collector to another person are um not regulated by the atf you don't have to do a background check and you don't have to have an ffl to uh, make those transactions um and the new law does state that it actually goes on to define predominantly earn a profit, um, and that is defined as pecuniary gain as opposed to improving or liquidating a personal firearms collection. Um, oh, and a fun fact, none of this applies to terrorism, <laughs> um, so I, I don't know why they felt they had to 
put that in there, but there's a, an entire section on that. Well, I guess if it ends up in the hands of terrorists, then they're going to um, say that that was the primary purpose for the, the sales and purchase. Yeah. I mean, I guess they don't care if you're a, a engaged in the business or not, if you're engaged in terrorism. Right. Yeah. Right. That should go without saying. Yeah, but I thought you had an interesting question about does this expand or narrow? Yeah, so we'll talk about that after the break. Does uh, this new definition of engaged in the business expand or narrow the the number of people that need an FFL, a federal firearms license, in order to legally sell or transport transfer uh, firearms got to take another break so we'll be right back stay tuned Back to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt here on 9:30 a.m. The Answer KLUP, talking with attorney Alex Volmer. Uh, we're discussing the Safer Communities Act, the bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is federal law now, and we're talking about um, the firearms provisions in that law, and we're talking about the definition of engaged in the business. So, Alex, we were going to introduce, does this narrow or does this expand the number of people that are going to be classified as engaged in the business and required to have a federal firearms license? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think you can look at it both ways. Um, and, And it was interesting that we spoke about it earlier and you had looked at it one way, I had looked at it the other, and then they were both sort of true, was that I think it sort of narrows in one way who is engaged in the business of firearms by having that definition of uh, with the purpose of predominantly earning a profit um, for pecuniary gain as opposed to improving or liquidating personal firearms collections. And so what's the change there that that you think could possibly narrow it? Well, the prior definition um, with the principal objective of livelihood and profit never defined or mentioned um, basically personal firearm collections, private sales, um, and so there was a lot more gray area. And so I, I think by saying I think it's narrowed that, it, it may be, maybe a better phrase would have been clarified. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, if you're doing it for – if you're a collector, then you don't need an FFL. Right, right. And um, then when we discussed it, you had pointed out the difference between – that word livelihood. Livelihood being a big That's the word. word that they took out in the new law. Yes. So I was thinking that in the old law, uh, you could say, yeah, I, I do uh, lots of transactions and I earn lots of money by selling and buying firearms, but it's not my livelihood. Mm-hmm. If, if, say, I'm a, a pharmacist. It's a bonus. Uh, right. Uh, well, my livelihood is my pharmacy. You know, I have a special degree for that. I have a special license for that. But all all of the firearms trading that I do, even though it, it amounts to uh, significant amounts of money, it's not my livelihood. So that's that's what I thought would um, narrow it. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with that because now it just says for pecuniary gain. So if you're a pharmacist, but you, you know, your hobby is more flipping guns to make some extra money versus... So if, if you earn $1,000 and that's $1,000 profit, that's a pecuniary gain. So now you're, you're, you're a federal firearms trader, seller? Well, and that's, you know, how how is this going to be interpreted? But I think what it means is that 
you know, if you, let's say, are just constantly flipping guns, you know, obtaining some and then trading for this and then selling for that one, you know, you you would have to look at the history of your transactions and transfers to say, you know, are any of these, do they fit within a scheme of collection? Is there a theme to your collection? Are Mm -hmm. you collecting, you know, do you have a particularized interest in an era of firearm or a style of firearm? I I met a guy the other day that he he liked Colt. Mm -hmm. And so almost all of his firearms are Colts. Mm -hmm. So that, that could be his his argument is that well i'm just trying to collect colts mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you earning a profit is uh, collateral to your collection yeah you can make that argument um you're not going to be required to take a loss right right exactly i mean that that would be some pretty heavy regulations having to report how much profit or loss you you earned in order to justify whether you do or do not have a federal firearms license. Uh, yeah, especially, you know, especially if you are just trading. Okay, so that's the engaged in the business of uh, definition. And that's probably going to result in some litigation because mm-hmm. courts will have to define that. And I'm sure the ATF will have some regulations on that as well. They they like to define things. Um, so just to remind you, we're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. This is Talk Law Radio, talking to attorney Alex Vollmer about the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And we're talking about the firearms section, which is Title II of this law. And um, the next section I'd like to get into is uh, the tools to prosecute gun traffickers and the uh, boyfriend loophole. So, Alex, uh, which one do you want to take? Uh, the boyfriend loophole. <laughs> okay. Uh, describe what that actually means for people that don't speak uh, firearms lingo. So the boyfriend loophole was a a scenario in federal law where – Federal law prohibits uh, the transfer of a firearm, the possession of a firearm, by somebody committed of a uh, crime, uh, convicted of a crime of domestic violence. And, you know, you had to find out, or they had to define what is a crime of domestic violence. And that definition federally did not include um, what in Texas we would call dating violence. It required that it was a family member, a cohabitator, or a um, spouse, or a spouse, and not in Texas law. Under Texas law, uh, domestic violence can also apply to a intimate partner or a dating relationship, even if you aren't cohabitating. So the federal law under this uh, bipartisan bill was expanded to also cover the boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, scenario. So the federal law is just coming up to the Texas standard now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, it's calling it the boyfriend loophole. It's kind of like calling it the gun show loophole. Um, why has it got to be the boyfriends? <laughs> but, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, we all know why. But um, the, the point being that it's a dating, dating relationship uh, as opposed to a marital family or cohabitation. Yeah. And, you know, like the cohabitation thing, um, so you can get a domestic violence charge against a roommate if you cohabitate together. Right. You know, you don't have to be. It could be two guys that go to school at the same school and and they get into a fist fight over who was supposed to wash the dishes. Yes. Let me ask you to put your uh, prosecutor uh, criminal defense hat on Mm -hmm. and uh, describe for us how a domestic violence charge would not be a felony because a felony is already going to cause you to be a prohibited person. Is mm-hmm. there a scenario where somebody could be charged with a mis- convicted of a misdemeanor violence? Um, what would that be? So I would say the vast majority of domestic violence cases in the state of Texas are misdemeanors. Um, a first offense Domestic violence charge is a Class A 
It's assault with bodily injury, they call it family. Or, so that could be a punch or a slap or yes, has to be, result in an injury, though. Well, not an injury. Um, inj- a black eye, a bloody nose, that's an injury. Honestly, pain. It, pain is enough. It doesn't have okay. to... It doesn't have to um, have a doesn't visual, have to leave a mark. Doesn't have to leave a mark. Um, you know, one of the examples that was always used is um, pulling hair. Um, you know, pulling hair hurts, but it doesn't really leave a mark. Yeah. Nothing that you can see. Uh, so, I heard stories about uh, girl fights at school. They did a lot of hair pulling. I, I have heard tell. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that was uh, was something that was used in jury selection all the time was to talk about, um, you know, how you can cause pain without leaving a mark or evidence of a of an actual injury. So injury isn't required. Um, okay. Pain. pain. I see. Yeah, pain is all that's required. And so that's one of the new hidden legal issue blind spots is if you get in a fight with your roommate, or if you happen to. Um, make a mistake, have an angry outburst, and um, and you're convicted, uh-huh. even though it's not a felony, uh-huh. even though you're not married or living in the same house, it could be uh, disqualify you from owning a firearm forever. Yes, yes. It's pretty much the only non-felony uh, criminal charges that can result in being a disqualified person. Also, I wanted to point out, much like the uh, blind spot relating to roommates um with dating violence it does not have to be an ongoing relationship uh former former intimate partners it also applies to them as well so ex-girlfriends and boyfriends great thank you for mentioning that yeah uh, the show's just flying by. I know that you're sitting on the edge of your seat learning about the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Uh, so we'll keep talking about that and more when we come back. Stay tuned. for your family, which is why it's important to meet with an attorney before you go on vacation. Get your affairs in order just in case, God forbid, tragedy strikes and you become disabled or worse happens while traveling. Attorneys at Marquardt Law Firm focus on business and estate law, including last wills, living trust, and tax-protected inheritance plans. A living trust might save your family thousands of dollars. Protect what's yours at Marquardt Law Firm. 210-530-4278. Welcome back to Talk Law Radio. I'm your host, Todd Marquardt, here with attorney Alex Vollmer talking about the new bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the federal law that results in some uh, appropriations to the states for mental health funding programs and for changing some of the firearms regulations, especially regarding uh, qualifying to purchase a firearm, and we were talking about the the boyfriend loophole, and now we're going to be talking about um, so-called red flag laws. Uh, This is in the section of this new law uh, about burn grants, state crisis intervention programs. Uh, Tell us about it, Alex. So state crisis intervention programs are going to refer to a, a number of programs such as Uh, specialty treatment courts like veterans court, drug court, uh, mental health court. And so these burn grants uh, are applying to those. Um, But what we're going to talk about mostly is about how these burn grants are being applied to um, the uh, emergency protection orders or the the red flag laws really okay. is, is is what those are commonly and colloquially known as. And what what is a red flag law? It's a law that would allow um, the state or 
a, a private citizen, depending on the state this red flag law is in, um, to petition a court for temporary removal of firearms from a person believed to present a danger to themselves or others. And these burn grants are here to... So this is appropriations mm -hmm. to the states so that the states can establish these red specialized f courts or red flag programs. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that's what the concern uh, is mainly about, the red flag portion of the grants, um, so that the states are given this money to institute and implement their red flag laws. Um, and uh, thankfully, the the law does have some minimum requirements of these programs, but they're still open to interpretation. And, and I, you know, I guarantee you, uh, uh, Second Amendment permissive states are going to draft these laws one ways, and Second Amendment restrictive states are going to draft them very, very differently, and they're going to interpret them very differently. Um, Let me say something about California. So my research uh, found that the California state legislature was the first to enact a red flag law allowing family members – to petition state courts to remove weapons after persons uh, deemed a threat after that that man Elliot Roger committed the mass shooting in uh, Isla Vista, California. Was that the at the like the Chili Festival or what was it? Maybe I can't remember. Yeah, well, and that's one of the big concerns: is who is going to have the right to petition the court? Is it going to be law enforcement? Or is it going to be a family member, a spouse, or even a cohabitator? Or a mental health provider. Or a mental health provider. And that's going to be determined by the individual state passing that law. So you mentioned um, the state, um, but some red flag laws allow police, you know, which is part of the state. Um, if there's a, a threat mentioned to, say, you call the police, then then they could uh, initiate that. So, what does this look like in practice? If if the police are called um, and the prosecutor says, um, "Yeah, that sounds like a credible threat," what should happen next under one of these new programs? So, under these new programs, um, there. It defines that there should be pre-deprivation and post-deprivation due process, and it requires notice of the uh, the allegation of the allegation, uh, the right to an in-person hearing. And this is this is pre-deprivation, um, the right to an in-person hearing, an unbiased adjudicator, uh, <laughs> um, disclosure of opposing evidence, the right to present your own evidence. Um, and the confrontation of witnesses adverse to your rights. So it could be sort of like what would happen in a criminal court. Very similar. Um, it does institute a high burden of production. I mean, a burden of proof. Um, you know, no. Uh, you know, no unsound evidence or hearsay. No unreliable or vague evidence is really going to be enough. Uh, enough. Um, you have the right to be represented. At your own cost, mm -hmm. um, so you're not going to be given— Because it's not a criminal charge. Right. You're not going to be given a—your a, liberty in and of itself is not at stake. And and that that connects to another point, if we have time, I'll make later, but— um, You might want to have an attorney or a law firm on, on retainer or at least to have their number mm -hmm. so that— they're familiar with you before something like this comes up. Right. And it does provide – it just says – the law says, quote, penalties for abuse of the program. Okay. So if someone alleges that um, I'm a danger to myself or others um, and really I'm not, but they're just mad at me because uh, I parked in front of their house – uh, then they could face some type of penalty for uh, making a bogus claim. Yeah, um, and of course, 
my first question is, you know, how are you going to establish what's an abuse? Mm -hmm. Again, that's going to come down to each individual state. You know, I can see uh, one of the most common abuses potentially would just be, you know, someone that disagrees with your stance on firearms just like continually uh, reporting you mm-hmm. um, just in, in a harassing manner and, you know, just basically becoming you know, what, what we would call a vexatious litigant. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's it's just untested. And 19 states in the District of Columbia have some form of red flag law in place. And, and one, Oklahoma, has an anti-red flag law. So what would the anti-red flag law say? I mean, it literally just says you can't have an, an a red flag law. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, you know, I wonder what Texas is going to do because yeah. we don't have a red flag law. No, we don't. But the the way that uh, the law, the existing law, sort of already has a process for if you think that someone is a danger to themselves or others because of a mental health problem. Yes, um, and I think this was what I wanted to talk about was uh, basically involuntary commitment. And so if you think someone is posing a danger to themselves or others, you know, you would call the police or you would call mental health professionals. And, you know, if the police arrive on scene, you know, sometimes they make a determination then and there. Are you a danger to yourself or other people? And under certain circumstances, you know, they would take you to a facility or a hospital and you could be involuntarily committed pending, you know, if they determined that you were, uh, you know, had legal capacity, uh, you know, but they could detain you if you didn't have it. And being involuntarily committed can, That's to the... say the least, adversely affect your rights to own or buy a firearm. They can make you a, it can make you a disqualified person. However, if you voluntarily commit yourself, that doesn't disqualify you. Right, because an involuntary commitment requires an adjudication, uh, which on the, the 4473, the background check form, is have you ever been adjudicated mentally defective? And that's what that would be. So if you do it, if you agree to go in, you can preserve or avoid being a disqualified person. Right. And you can get that status restored. You can get that fixed, but uh, guess who you have to call? Your lawyer. Your lawyer. Have That's... you helped people get get their uh, prohibited person status changed? Yes. It's not, not easy. Not, you know, it's not that hard. It's just bureaucratic. Okay. Well, that in my mind means it's difficult. Yes, it, it is. It is. It, it's. It's not. It's not that like the burden of proving that you have been restored is that hard. It's just a long process to go through. Okay. Well, our show is uh, winding down, and I always like to talk about legacy in the last segment. So you know what time that is. And now it's time for the Talk Law Radio Legacy Spotlight. What's your legacy? Sponsored by Marquardt Law Firm. So in our legacy segment today, Alex, I want to talk about gun trusts and NFA trusts. And just to remind our listeners why this may be important to them, even if they just have collectibles. So tell us uh, your perspective on that. So NFA trusts are a really, really good tool for several reasons. One is legacy reasons. You know, you uh, have secured a plan and a mechanism to make sure that these uh, these firearms are distributed how you want to, taken care of how you want to. Um, you know, you can keep a collection together. You can make sure certain firearms go to certain people. Um, you can ensure that they don't just get, you know, let's say you have some really cool historical pieces. You can ensure that they don't just get, you know, donated to a police department to get chopped up. Yeah. Um, and then it has some very practical considerations. An NFA trust has very practical considerations for um, 
collecting and obtaining uh, NFA regulated, regulated firearms. Um, to me, the most important advantage of a trust over any other method of, of getting um, an NFA firearm, such as a, a silencer, is that you have a mechanism to appoint other responsible people that can possess those firearms. One of the other most popular ways to get them is as an individual. Well, that's it. That means you, you're the only person that can ever legally possess that. If you have a trust, you can appoint co-trustees who can then possess or be in possession of use your NFA firearms. Yeah, and so we refer to this kind of trust as a special purpose trust Mm -hmm. because it's specific to one type of asset, Mm -hmm. firearms. And there are lots of situations that I've run into over the years where um, an estate may not be billionaires or millionaires worthy, but it's um, what the guy had. It's what he... Uh, collected his whole life he, he that's what he put his money into and so you don't want to just let that go to chance and say my family's going to figure it out because they're going to fight with each other and we like to reduce family conflict so that's the end of the show thanks alex thanks for having me Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.